0: So being part of a church makes you part of a family. And being part of this church makes you part of this family. Well, this is good news and... Bad news, depending how you look at it. Good news, of course, because it means that God has given us each other in order that we might share this life together, that we might go through the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, the sadnesses and the celebrations, that we have not been made to live this life in isolation. We do not have what it takes to live this life alone. And so God has knit us together in this family, in this place called church, and it's good to be a part of it. Bad news, of course, that the church is a family because as we're all too aware right now, having just spent Christmas with them, uh, families can be crazy. Families often, in fact, are crazy. There is enough dysfunction to go around in any family and the church is no different from uh, the pastor to the pews. Justin McRoberts once said that being a part of the church family is kind of like being in a family with a thousand drunk uncles. Well. (laughs) Here we are. Here we are together this morning. And you know, for God's people, it's always been this way. God's people have always been a spectacularly dysfunctional crew. Now, as we begin this series together, God meant it for good. I want to introduce you to the main characters of our series and then the main theme of our series. The character and then the theme. Let's look at these two, th- two ideas together. The first thing we see as we come to the characters, we're going to look at three of them, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. The first thing we see is that they are a spectacularly dysfunctional crew. Look with me first Ed, at Jacob, the father of these motley fools. When we meet him, we find him playing favorites with one of his sons, playing favorites with Joseph. Now, Jacob really should have known better We did a sermon series on his life last year, you may remember, or you could go back and listen to it, and you'll see that in his own family of origin, he had experienced firsthand the devastating effects of parental favoritism. In his family, he had found that his twin brother Esau had been favored by their father, Isaac, while he, Jacob, had been favored by their mother, Rebekah. And he had experienced the terrible discord and jealousy and destruction that this kind of parental favoritism can bring. Well, now he has a family of his own, and like so many of us, he repeats the mistakes of his parents. Perhaps he had said he never would. Perhaps he promised to be a different kind of parent. Well, as it turns out, here he is making the same mistakes his own parents had made. Verse 3, look at it with me, gives us the details. Now, Israel, which is another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. This means that he was the son of his favored wife, Rebecca, um, Rachel, sorry. Now, if we're looking for sign of dysfunction in a family, the fact that you have a favorite wife, it uh, should clue you in that all is not well in your family. Polygamy was condemned in the Old Testament. God never sanctioned it, never encouraged it, never allowed it. It was always a sin, and yet his people had fallen into this practice. And so here we have Jacob with his favorite wife, Rachel, with whom he has his favorite son, Joseph. Now, he knew, Jacob knew that God had promised to bring a savior from one of his descendants. And perhaps he considered that this savior would come from, from Joseph's line, this favorite son. As it turns out, that would not be the case. But for one reason or perhaps another, there's no doubt that he loves Joseph the most. And so what does he do? Verse 3, he made him a robe of many colors. Now. We don't know what this robe looks like, this technicolour dream coat that we're so familiar with in our culture. It's interesting to note that the only other time this phrase appears in the Bible, it's used to refer to a a royal garment. So the idea is more that it is um, a rich or expensive fabric than that it's necessarily all that colourful. But whatever the case, in a day and an age where clothing was very symbolic... He's given this coat to signify his status and standing within the family, to signify and make sure everyone knows that he is the favored son, and certainly his brothers know it all too well. So here we have Jacob, an old man, and yet still a bit of a mess. An old man who's still a bit of a mess. He hasn't learned the lessons from his past. He's repeating the mistakes of those who have gone before him. Even after all these years, Jacob has a long way to go. Now, I don't know about you, but his story can resonate. Perhaps his story does resonate with, with you. Maybe this is where you find yourself today. Maybe you've been around the church and been a Christian for, for a long time. And yet, maybe you're still struggling with the same old struggles. And maybe you're still struggling with the lack of progress that you've made in the Christian life. Maybe you're embarrassed by the hypocrisy of your life if people only knew what you were really like. One commentator says, you are as justified today as you ever will be by Christ's righteousness. And yet, in some ways, you may be as far from living out the full implications of that reality as you have have ever been. Do you feel like a hypocritical Christian this morning? Well, then this series may be for you. Because we're going to learn, between here and Genesis 50, that you cannot outgrow your need of God's grace. It doesn't matter whether you're 85 or 75 or 15 or 5. We all stand in need of God's grace, and we're going to learn that it's available to us. No matter how long we've walked with him, or how far along we think we should be, or how big a hypocrite we might think we are, God's grace is here as it was for Jacob. So that's the first character that we're going to look at in our series. A second character comes in verse, we're introduced to in verse 2, where after meeting Jacob, the father who plays favorites, we meet his favorite son, Joseph. Now, the first appearance of a biblical character in the stage of any narrative is always important. It sets the expectation for what this character might be like, and and Joseph is no exception. In verse 2 there, you see it, we meet him at 17 years of age, and he's been sent out to help his brothers as they care for the sheep. Now, I want to be very clear that Joseph's name might be in the subtitle of our series, The Gospel According to Joseph, but Joseph is not the hero of this story. His coat of many colors can't hide his true colors. Very quickly, we see that this 17-year-old, how did you feel about him as we read the text? just a bit of a punk, right? (laughs) He's a 17-year-old punk. Two things that really stand out to me. First of all, at the end of verse 2, we read that Joseph, who's been working in the fields with his brother, brings a bad report about them to his father. See the phrase there, bad report? Well, in some ways, it's not the best translation because in English, a bad report could be true or false. I might spread a bad report, but it could be it could be the truth. Well, in the Hebrew, the idea is more of being a, a having a, a to do with slander or, or malice. In fact, when this term is translated in Proverbs ten twenty eight, it's it's translated as as slander. And so the idea here is that Joseph doesn't like his brothers. And so he's brought a fabricated or at least exaggerated report of their misdeeds back to their father. And being the smug youngest favored child, he knows that he'll be believed. So instantly, verse 2, we don't like this guy. Then it gets worse with his dreams, or more specifically, his handling of his dreams. First one comes in verse 7. You see it there? He sees himself harvesting grain with his brothers when suddenly their 11 sheaves of grain bow down to his. Then, verse 9, he sees the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to worship him, representing not just his 11 brothers, but his, his mother and his his father as well. See, everybody already knows that Joseph is daddy's favorite, but now he makes sure to tell them all that he's going to be, in his eyes, God's favorite too. He is the one before whom All the others will bow. And he makes sure to tell them about it, no doubt gloating in the process. Isn't it interesting that in verse 8 it says that they hate him for his dreams and for his words. It's not just the dream, it's how he told them about the dreams. We read about Joseph and we just find that he's a distasteful, wee punk. He's full of pride, inflated ego. He's on that wide path that leads to destruction. And he's in desperate need of an intervention to set him on a different path. And again, that's maybe where some of us find ourselves this morning. Running down this path of life with very little thought of God. Perhaps prideful like Joseph, making a name for ourselves, making a reputation for ourselves. Perhaps more passively, just living life without giving the Lord a second thought. But our text is going to teach us that a life that is not lived in dependence upon the Lord is a life that's lived on dangerous ground. And so again, this series can be for us because we find, don't we, don't we all find at one point or another, we're in need of that kind of intervention. Intervening grace to put us right on the back, back on the right path. And we're going to learn between here and chapter 50 that God loves to intervene. He loves to intervene when we are running or even drifting from him in order to bring us back to himself. Now friends, we're going to learn that he sometimes does so in hard, challenging, and brutal ways. Sometimes his mercy is severe, but in the end we're always glad that he's... Intervened for us. So that's the second character we see. First, Jacob, absolute disaster. Second, Joseph, bit of a smug punk. Third, the group of brothers. Now let's look at them together. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting that brothers in Genesis never get along? Right. Begins with Cain and Abel. Good start, right? Um, And then we move along to Isaac and Ishmael, who don't get along, and Jacob and Esau, who don't get along, and now this motley crew, who certainly don't get along. Couldn't be farther from Philadelphia. We read that they hated Joseph. Why did they hate him? Well, first, verse 4, there's this quote this constant reminder that he's the favored son. Uh, We read at the end of that verse that they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Literally that says they couldn't speak peace to him. They couldn't even greet him. Such was their, their hatred for him. After the coat, we have these dreams and Joseph's cocky retelling of them. This made them hate him all the more. Verse 5 and then verse 8 again tells us that having hated him, they hated him more. And having hated him more, they hated him yet more again. They are full of anger and will soon learn next week in verses 12 and following that their anger doesn't stay below the surface. Their anger doesn't stay below the surface. It will soon erupt with vengeful decisions and actions that they'll regret for the rest of their lives. These brothers are part of God's family, but their sin, internal and external, is is on full display. Their sin is on full display. And again, that's where some of us find ourselves this morning. Perhaps it's the sin of hatred and anger like the brothers here in this text. Perhaps it's another sin that you've found in your heart and now is <laughs> being let loose in your life. Perhaps you're, you're not aware what it is. Perhaps there's a, a kind of passivity that you've not even asked this question yet. Well, aware or unaware, this series again can be for us all because we're going to learn between here and chapter 50 that God loves to offer forgiveness in a way that doesn't just change eternity but also brings health and peace to today. Health and peace to today. So what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen the characters. We've seen a father who's a disaster, Joseph who's full of pride, brothers who are full of hatred, which takes us to our theme. This group, father, son, brothers, full of of folly, pride, and hatred, this group is God's people. This is the church. The, these are, these are, are God's chosen ones, and they're an absolute disaster. This group of disreputable men are the ones that God has claimed as his own, the ones who God has promised to use, the ones through whom God has even promised to bring the very salvation of the world. And you know, by the end, by chapter 50, we'll see redemption. We'll see redemption has taken place. God is going to intervene, bringing both salvation to this family and indeed health to their entire clan. And so we see the theme even at the outset here. The primary purpose of this section of scripture is not to show us how we can be good people. The primary purpose of this section of scripture is to show us how good God has been to us, And what's true of this section is true of the entire Bible. The point isn't primarily to show us how we can be good people, but to show how good God has been to us. Of course, we're going to find that every section of this uh, uh, part of the Bible finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the one through whom God has been ultimately good to us in his life and his death and his resurrection so that by grace, we who are sinners have been made Friends, We who are broken can be healed. He can recommission us for his kingdom so that we'll learn what it means to be part of God's people. We don't celebrate our own goodness. We celebrate how good God has been to us. Let me close with a story. Um, New Year. I'm one of these sentimental people who likes to reflect on the year past and have highlights and lowlights and look ahead to the year to come and have, you know, wishes and and resolutions. Well, a clear highlight for me this year came on our 15th anniversary. But to understand why, I need to tell you a couple other stories to to make sense of it. Uh, First story is a a reminder that last Advent, uh, we did a sermon series that in many ways parallels this one uh, called The Dysfunctional Family of Jesus. And we looked at the family tree of Jesus, and we saw that the women who are listed there so Tamar is in there, and Rahab is in there, and, and Ruth and Bathsheba, and they are just a phenomenally dysfunctional group of women. And the stories that are in this, those texts of kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, are, are enough to make any movie R-rated. Well, this was a, a really helpful sermon series to me because we looked at those women and saw how God brought redemption through them. And that was, it was just a, a series that was really good for my soul. I often feel like God made me a pastor for my own soul. Right, I don't know if it's going to be helpful to any of y'all, but it's going to be good for me. Okay, so <laughs> praise him for that. Right, um, I was just a, you know one of those uh, one of those series that, that stuck with me and, and did my soul good. So that's one dot. Hold on to that. Give you another dot, and I'll connect them. Second dot for you to understand why um, our anniversary was so powerful is a kind of dynamic that's at play in my marriage with Rosie, and she's rolling her eyes at me right now. So um, here's how it works. Um, on any given day, i uh, if you ask me how I'm doing out of ten, I'll be a two or an eight. I'll be depressed or delighted, right? Rosie, every single day of her life, is a six, okay? She is steady, practical, stable. How are you today? Six. How are you tomorrow? Six. From generation to generation. Yesterday, today, forever. She is the same. Um, Jesus comes back, maybe six and a half. Right? Just like super steady. And... Um, this creates funny moments in our marriage right because i'll for example i'll read a book and i'll just weep at how beautiful it is and then i'll give it to her and she'll be like me right <laughs> you know it's just gonna kind of, it's just it's just this kind of dynamic at play now some from time to time she'll come to me and she'll say do you wish it wasn't like that you know do you wish that we could have more of those kind of like philosophical connections and i'm always like no that is not what I need, right? Jeff Vogan came up with a picture. It's like, I'm like the puppy that needs someone on, to be on someone's leash, you know? So that's, that's healthy for, for our dynamic. Um, so I will say, no, 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 I, uh, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm looking for in this place. Well, those two stories. Advent, dysfunctional family, this dynamic in our marriage. Here we are sitting in a restaurant in Williamsburg celebrating our 15th year anniversary this summer. And it comes time to exchange gifts. And I give her my gift, and it's like, whatever, right? (laughs) And then she gives me this. Take a look at it. If you're sitting at the back, you can come up at the end and have a closer look. Can you see what it is? It's it's a painting Rosie had commissioned, uh, and it's called The Four. And it's the four women that are in Jesus' family tree. So we have Tamar here. And then we have Rahab, see, with our scarlet cord. And you have Ruth holding some grain. And you have Bathsheba holding the baby of adultery. And I love this painting because on one hand, I find it strange that there are no expressions on their faces. See, they have no eyes, no nose, no mouth. But do you see what else they have? What, do you know what my favorite part of this painting is? Do you see it? They're all wearing crowns. Isn't that the gospel right there? That Jesus takes prostitutes and he turns them into princesses. He takes dysfunctional people and he makes them royalty. He makes them royalty. Now, as Rosie gives me this gift sitting in this restaurant in Williamsburg, I, I'm, I'm profoundly moved for for two reasons. First of all, because... <laughs> You know on this whole like should we have more of a philosophical connection thing? I'm like, Rosie, you have no idea. I have never felt more known. You might think my books are stupid, but you get me. right? <laughs> and that's one of the great joys of, of, of marriage. To, 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 to not just know, but be known. It's a profoundly moving thing. The second thing though, and it kind of created a very humorous situation. Because I actually, believe it or not, was lost for words. Okay? And I didn't speak for a while. Rosie kind of felt a bit awkward about it. Um, and at one point, she actually went to the bathroom and said, by the time I come back, you better have pulled yourself together. <laughs> Six, right? <laughs> but the second thing that really moved me, when I looked at this in my office, and, uh, when I looked at this at the, in the restaurant, and now as I look at it in my office, it, it hangs my office now is the reminder that God loves to take broken, dysfunctional people and do something beautiful in them. And when I see this painting, I know he's doing the same in me. (laughs) He's doing the same in me. And our prayer for this series is that he's going to do the same in us all. Because what we saw him do with these women, with Tamar and, and the rest... We're going to see him do in these men, Jacob, Joseph, and the rest. Last year we saw the women, this year we see the men. They're all a complete disaster. No no, you know, no group is worse than the other. They're all just completely dysfunctional. And yet, by his grace, God takes them all and makes something beautiful from them. So we are, yes, a dysfunctional family. You do have a thousand drunk uncles but we also have the promise and the hope that what, has been, what is broken is now being made new. And may we see that as we work through this series together. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, for Jacob and Joseph and all the brothers, for the mess that they are, because it reminds us, Lord, that the Bible is, is not written to show us how we can be good people. It's written to show us how good you've been to us. And as surely as you were good to those women and as surely as you were good to those men, so surely now you are being so good to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, though, we we pray that you would be with us in these coming weeks as we study this uh, as a church and that we really would be growing as you grew them in response to this, this gospel grace. Um, and it's not a thing we pray lightly, because as we know from experience and as we'll see from these passages, growth is hard, and your intervention can be severe. So help us, we pray. Would this time together in your words serve to make us more like your son? We ask it in his perfect name. Amen.